Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. As always, I am your host Usamimi and this episode is a special Halloween review episode. Now, for those of you who are new to the podcast, a review episode is a shorter episode I do in between longer ones. Usually where I choose an older anime I haven't watched in quite some time to rewatch and see if I still feel the same way that I did about it when I first watched it or, you know, see if my opinion on it has changed over time. But I thought this time in the spirit of Halloween this month, I'd try something a little different. This review episode, I'm going back and re-reading a manga I haven't read in a while to see what I think of it now. And as an extra Halloween treat, or maybe trick, I'll also be doing a mini review of a newer movie that sort of ties into today's manga title. Sound like fun? Then I hope you'll join me for the rest of this episode. If this kind of episode isn't your thing, however, no worries. Next episode, I will return to my long format style with me and a guest talking in depth about a title, so please look forward to it next month. Many regular listeners know that Halloween is one of my absolute favorite times of year because it's full of things that I love. The weather finally starts cooling off, the leaves change color, fall treats start popping up everywhere, and best of all, everyone seems way more interested in actually trying out one of my favorite genres, horror. So what better time to go back and revisit a classic horror title? This month, the fine folks at Viz Media were kind enough to send me an early review copy of their brand new Perfect Edition re-release of a horror title I really enjoyed in the past but haven't read in some time. And that would be Kazuo Umezu's 70s horror manga classic, The Drifting Classroom. Viz originally started releasing this series back in 2006, when I stumbled upon it at my local library. That was back when the library closest to me at the time was really starting to ramp up their collection of manga, so I was overjoyed. But even then, they weren't able to keep up with the whole series, so I ended up buying some of the later volumes myself to finish reading the series. It wasn't until years later that I discovered the manga eventually went out of print and some of those volumes became increasingly hard to find, which led me to try to scramble to find the rest, but sadly to no avail. While this was disappointing to me, I had at least read the whole series when I had had the opportunity, so I wasn't too upset. Now, whenever I tried to describe The Drifting Classroom to people, it was a bit tricky because it sounds a bit like a fever dream. One day, the entirety of Yamato Elementary School is abruptly lifted from its very foundation and whisked away to a deserted wasteland, and everyone inside of it must try to figure out not only how to survive, but how to get along with each other to do so. In the face of this terrifying situation, many characters seem to lose their minds, while others tried their best to band students together in the face of adversity. All the while, drawn in a very 70s shonen horror manga style, with emphasis on heavy, dark lines, graphic depictions of violence, and plenty of close-ups of terrified faces. 
My go-to elevator pitch for this manga was usually, imagine if you combined Scooby-Doo with Lord of the Flies, and that's still not quite the best description for it, because it's just so much more than that. And it really was. While sometimes confusing, The Drifting Classroom was part survival horror, part social commentary, and those kinds of things were exactly up my alley. I will be the first to admit that, even back then, I wasn't very keen on the artwork at first. It was so different looking from the stuff I was reading at the time. It didn't have the same elegance or level of detail as work by Clamp or Rumiko Takahashi. Even compared to older titles I liked, like Tezuka for example, it felt a bit stiff in comparison. But once I really got into the meat of the story, I started to let any style preferences I had slide because I was just way too invested in what was going to happen to the residents of Yamato Elementary to harp on the art style. In fact, the more I read, the more it grew on me and I started liking it more and more. It wasn't beautiful per se, but it had a charm all its own. And while it's most definitely a horror series, that's not to say that it was all scary stuff all the time. I remember this manga often having moments of silliness in it, which surprised me quite a bit. It always seemed to come when I least expected it, and sometimes I'd question if these were intentionally funny, or if it was just part of what I thought was ridiculous given the context. It'll be interesting to see if I still find these random moments funny or not. So, I guess it's time to pull up a chair, check under the bed for anything spooky, and crack open this brand new release of a classic manga in this month's reread. so long since I'd read the series from the start that I'd almost forgotten that the story of The Drifting Classroom starts out focused squarely on bratty sixth grader Sho Takamatsu. He's a bit of a handful and likes to push the envelope on what he can and can't get away with with everything in life, including constantly pushing his mother. But one day, disaster strikes, and his entire classroom just up and vanishes in what seems to be some sort of mysterious explosion, leaving his poor mother and every adult in town in a panic. When Sho, his classmates, and teachers all wake up later, they're devastated to discover their school seems to be surrounded by a seemingly endless, dark and sandy wasteland, their parents and loved ones long gone. What follows in this first volume is mostly Sho having to not only deal with his own fear of what will happen to him and become of his friends, but having to calm down all the younger children around him on top of slowly watching all of the adults around him descend into madness. One by one, some faster than others, all of the adults left in the elementary school just drop like flies. Several immediately cannot deal with the idea that there's possibly been a bombing, turning the world outside of the school into a nuclear wasteland, and commit suicide. 
Others try to hold on to their sanity but cannot, and are killed by other teachers in their hysteria. As the manga goes on, eventually Sho and the students of Yamato are the only ones left standing. I didn't really notice it at the time, but this is a great example of Umezu's knack for keeping even his most ridiculous-seeming stories somewhat grounded in reality. Sho explains to his classmates later when they wonder just why every adult in their school went mad that, in a nutshell, adults tend to think of things in very black and white terms. So when something happens that they can't explain or figure out right away, the stress gets to them. Children, on the other hand, are more creative and open to thinking about different possibilities. You can tell in this not-so-subtle commentary that Umezu definitely thinks the younger generations are largely underestimated by the older. And famously, he never tried to dumb down any of his work for children, which he learned from reading the manga of the iconic Osamu Tezuka. While not everything Sho and the students of Yamato Elementary do is smart, most of them make up for what they lack in persistence, that's for sure. And because these kids are going through this incredibly fantastical story of survival, Umezu never holds back when it comes to depictions of danger. Character deaths come swiftly and frequently. Punches, stabbings, chokings, and loss of limbs abound. Everyone in this series is in a constant state of danger because they don't know where they are or how to get back home. Emotions are high, the drama is high, and you just never know what's going to happen next. A solar eclipse? A crazed lunch man holding all the food hostage? Time-traveling knives? A kaiju-sized giant sandbug? <laughs> Literally anything can happen, and watching it unfold will keep you on your toes throughout the book. While it's very obvious that the manga art is a product of its time, this time around I felt the artwork was even more enjoyable than before, actually. The moodiness of the heavy inks and the liberal use of black works extremely well for the type of surrealist survival horror story Umezu set out to tell. While the characters' movements from panel to panel can sometimes come off as a bit stiff, the action is always presented in the most dramatic way possible, highlighted by emotional close-ups of scared, screaming, angry faces, one of Umezu's trademarks. Capturing the raw emotions of both adults and children on the edge is no easy feat, but he does a great job of showing us pretty believable depictions of what these characters would go through in an extreme crisis, and of course, it's not exactly pretty. One of the most haunting parts of the book for me was a scene of young children who were so scared and so confused, they tried to convince themselves that they could turn into birds and fly away, and jumped from the roof of the school. This wasn't the most graphic thing in the manga by a long shot, but the feeling of helplessness these children felt was just so chilling, it gives me shivers just thinking about it. One thing that's also a big indicator of this manga being older is one of the more, quote, brainy children of the school going on a bit of a spiel about how it was imperative that they choose a male student as the leader of their now adultless school because females aren't good at such things and should be delegated to more, quote, feminine things like cooking, cleaning, and raising babies. 
This is laughable, of course, but I can easily overlook it in part because the character that rambled on about this kind of thing is sort of a joke character anyway. The way he's drawn and portrayed reminds me of a more typical gag manga character. And he's only really around for show and the other characters to sometimes ask for help in solving a tough problem, since he's supposed to have some sort of insanely high IQ for an elementary school student. Otherwise, he's kind of framed as a wimp who likes to rudely tell people they're wrong about stuff. And like I mentioned before, there is definitely a lot of moments of intentional, or maybe sometimes otherwise, breaks of humor, which I always kind of like in the horror I consume, because it gives you a bit of release from the ongoing tension that a story has. Some students are very much drawn in that more typical 70s style comedy manga look and will randomly do a dumb or silly thing to give you a moment to catch your breath in between worrying about what's going to happen to all these poor kids. One of my favorites is a goofy looking kid who, upon finding some canned pineapple in a hidden food storage room, gets so excited about it, he grabs the can and yells, pineapple in a gleeful manner and tries to chomp down on the can with his bare teeth. It's just an odd slapstick moment that just kind of feels out of place, but somehow you can't help but laugh at it. You can tell that Junji Ito grew up reading and loving Umezu's work because he handles humor in a similar fashion in many of his stories. Since I don't have the first couple of volumes handy of the old physical release, I can't compare these two releases, but from what I can remember, I feel like this new translation flows a bit better than the original. It seems to be a lot more coherent, and as I remember, some parts originally had me a bit confused. Which, I mean, understandably, with a story like this, that isn't too hard to do. But the fine-tuning they did with it, not only with the new translation, but the new lettering, seems to be a noticeable improvement. And I really have to talk about just how nice this new release of The Drifting Classroom is. This really gave it a beautiful treatment compared to the original paperback release. This perfect edition is massive. It's over 700 pages long, containing the first three volumes of the story and in a much larger print size than the old release. It's a nice hardcover, uh, similarly bound to the Junji Ito, Uzumaki, and Tomie collections, where it's case-bound with artwork printed directly onto the cover rather than on a dust jacket, and it has white embossed lettering on the cover. The cover is a selected piece of the manga art from this volume that's been colored a very deep red, which definitely emphasizes that yes, this is indeed a horror manga. The new logo looks really cool too, as does the entire design overall. I think my only concern would be that if someone who'd never read the series picked this up off the shelf, it's not all that apparent what kind of book this is or what it's even about at first glance until you read the short blurb on the back. But that's really a minor nitpick, as on the whole I just really really love the look and feel of this new release a whole lot. You can definitely tell that the team who worked on this put a lot of love into how this book was going to look. You'll also notice that they credit the artist as 
Umez on the cover too, which is apparently his preferred way for spelling his name now, though I still constantly forget and just call him Umezu. Sorry, Umez sensei. So, would I still recommend this 70s manga horror classic today? Absolutely. In fact, I probably love this manga more now than when I originally read it. While it's obviously from a different time, the story still feels fresh and interesting and terrifying when you think about just how much danger these poor kids are in. It was a groundbreaking story for its time, and if you've ever read and enjoyed manga like Battle Royale, Doubt, Limit, Gantz, and countless other stories that boast a survival horror plotline, you owe it to yourself to at least check out this classic manga that most likely had a hand in inspiring some of those titles. While Umezu's art might look dated at times, it's done with such a unique intensity that really does well with the bleak and surreal tone of the story. There's a reason that Japan celebrates Umezu as one of the masters of horror manga, and there's no better time to check it out than in the month of October. Viz has a free preview of the new perfect edition of The Drifting Classroom on their website, which I'll link to in the show notes if you want to check it out. The manga is also available to purchase digitally, and the new perfect edition hardcover is available in book and comic shops currently, as well as for sale at online retailers like The Right Stuff, Barnes Noble, Amazon, and wherever you like to order your manga. You can also request it from your local library if you can't afford to pick it up right now. Checking out manga at your local library supports manga titles just as much as buying them, so it's a great resource if you haven't checked it out yet. Now, I haven't forgotten that movie I mentioned at the top of the show. So, normally, I don't review newer anime or films unless it's somehow related to something older. And while I was in the middle of reading The Drifting Classroom for this episode, I was contacted by the folks at Dark Coast to see if I'd be interested in doing a little review of their release of a very unique new anime film called Violence Voyager. All I needed to see was the trailer to know that I was indeed very interested, because not only did it seem like something some of my listeners might want to check out, but its style definitely has roots in classic Japanese horror manga. Now, I say that Violence Voyager is an anime, but it'd be more accurate to call it a gekimation, a combination of the term gekiga and animation. Gekiga is the term coined by artist Yoshihiro Tatsumi to describe manga that was more mature and cinematic. Basically, stuff that was made with older readers in mind rather than kids. Gekimation is when paper cutouts are used instead of trying to have 
full motion animation like a regular anime. In fact, Umezu's manga title, The Cat-Eyed Boy, had a TV show adaptation done in this very same style back in the 70s. This gives the film more of a shadow puppet or storybook style look, which I think has its own storytelling advantages. If you've seen the more recent horror anime Yami Shibai, they use a similar style, though it's all drawn digitally rather than on real paper cutouts. But Violence Voyager does it completely old school, folks. Like the Gekimation of the 70s, all the characters, backgrounds, and props are made with paper, lovingly crafted and painted by hand, and filmed painstakingly to move along with the voiceover and story. And much like its namesake, this is a movie that is definitely not for kids in the most old-school 80s anime way possible, though the story does star two kids. The Japanese elementary school student Akun and his American exchange student friend Bobby. While taking a hike through a nearby mountain in hopes to go visit a friend that had moved away, they stumble upon what appears to be an amusement park named Violence Voyager, naturally. The tension starts to build as we, the viewers, can already tell something is up. And once the actual violence starts, it just keeps ramping up and up until almost the very end, trapping these kids in a horrific game of survival, bloodshed, and body horror that feels right out of a Cronenberg story. The first thing that struck me about this movie was just how incredibly intricate a lot of the paintings within it are. Each character of every scene is lovingly hand-painted in loud primary color palettes reminiscent of old kaiju movie posters and colorized film. And while characters speak and scream with no mouth movements, the combination of art and dubbed over character voices done in such a retro campy style makes it incredibly entertaining to take in. The animators even go the extra mile and sometimes use real water and colored liquids for special effects like running water, blood, and other gross liquids found within the story. And much like the poor children of the drifting classroom, our kids have to fight to survive against horrors with little to no help from adults. By the end of the movie, there's a high body count and not very many answered questions as the plot kind of goes off the rails, but that too almost seems like a throwback to the classic things that inspired it. Violence Voyager is the name of the amusement park, and it seems appropriate as the movie itself is like one wild roller coaster of a film that you could almost describe as more of an experience rather than a typical anime film. But of course, since this movie is a throwback in so many ways, it does sometimes suffer from time-honored problems. As I mentioned before, the plot kind of goes running at full speed and doesn't really answer a lot of the mysteries that it starts. The female characters in the movie are used to move the plot along and little else. I was given the English dub of the movie to watch, and while I love how the actors were directed as if they were dubbing an old 80s movie, there were times where it could have been a little bit more fine-tuned. Places where I expected to hear some good old horror movie shrieking were silent and felt a bit awkward. 
And there were a lot of signs around the park that were in Japanese that I would have loved to have seen some translated on-screen subtitles for. There was definitely one near the beginning of the park that kept switching text every time the camera pulled away and came back. My Japanese isn't all that great, so I only caught maybe a third of what the sign said. And people who can't read Japanese at all would miss out entirely on that little visual joke. And fair warning, if you're sensitive to violence against animals, there are some scenes of that in this movie, even though it's obviously not fully animated, but as with everything else in this movie, it is still a bit graphic. Those things aside, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. The amount of work that went into this movie was absolutely staggering to me, so I wasn't surprised to learn that it took the director, a person listed only as Ujicha, five years to film and complete it. This movie was such a great compliment to reading the Drifting Classroom manga, and if you love weird, wild Japanese horror movies in the vein of House or The Happiness of the Katakuris, then you'd probably have a great time with it too. Older anime fans who listen to the English dub for the movie will recognize some of the voices, including Debbie Derryberry, who you might remember as Ryo Oki in all of the old Tenshi Muyo anime dubs, Pixie Misa in Magical Girl Pretty Sammy, as well as Jimmy Neutron himself. Violence Voyager doesn't have a physical release as of this recording, but it will be available to purchase digitally starting October 21st, 2019 on places like Amazon, DirecTV, FlixFling, Vimeo On Demand, Vudu, Fandango, and AT&T. And that about wraps it up for this spooky Halloween-themed double feature of the podcast. What did you think? Did you like hearing a review episode about a manga for a change instead of an anime title? Would you want to hear more reviews of newer things that are related to older titles? I'd love to hear your thoughts, as this was something new that I wanted to try. Hopefully, you have some new things to check out this Halloween season, or anytime you feel like a little something creepy. Many thanks to Viz for sending me a copy of the Drifting Classroom Perfect Collection Volume 1, as well as Dark Coast for allowing me to preview Violence Voyager. And of course, a huge thanks to those who left me tips this month on Kofi. My lone Kofi donator for October is Amandul. Thank you so, so much, Amandul, for the coffees. I appreciate them so much, as those tips help me out a lot. While this month I was lucky enough to get review copies of things sent to me, most of the things I review for the podcast are things I pay for out of pocket. So if you want to help the podcast and be just as amazingly awesome as Amandul is, all you have to do is leave me a tip of two or more coffees in my Kofi account, and you'll get your own shout out on the next episode. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at animenostalgia.blogspot.com, as well as at animenostalgia.tumblr.com, where you can also find other relevant links for this episode, as well as links to past episodes and news, posts, and other fun stuff relating to older anime, manga, and fandom. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Just do a search for the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, and you can usually find it. 
And while you're there, you could always show my podcast some love by leaving a rating or a review. I always love seeing what people have to say about the podcast. Or if you want to send me your thoughts and comments directly, or you just want to say hi, you can always email me at animenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. It might take me a little while to get back to you, but I promise that I do read all the email that I get. Next episode, we'll return to our longer format with a guest, so look forward to it. As always, I have been your host, Usamimi, and I will see you next time. Until then, have a fun and spooky Halloween. (laughs) 